Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today is a fun show. They're all fun shows, right? Mostly fun shows. Uh, it's a fun show because I got to talk to Tom McCarthy, uh, who's someone I like a lot. He started off as an actor and then became an indie filmmaker. You should check out The Station Agent. That's his first movie starring Peter Dinklage way before Game of Thrones. Then he won Academy Awards for Spotlight. And now he's got a new movie out, Stillwater, with Matt Damon. We talk about all of that and what sitting on a movie for a year during the pandemic didn't didn't do for him and why you should see a smallish movie like this in a movie theater. There's no superheroes in it. It's still something you should see in a movie theater. Uh, We also talk about playing one of the most loathed characters on TV that was in The Wire. That character also happens to be a journalist. If you like The Wire, this is also a good show for you. And also, just because I want to keep giving you guys a sense of what's out there in the creator world, what it's like to be a creator, what that word actually means, I had a brief chat uh, with Kyla Scanlon, who does very interesting TikTok stuff involving finance. Uh, she's accidentally found a career there. I'm always interested in people who sort of accidentally become creators. Those are pretty fascinating for me. If you are listening to this podcast, she may well be up your alley. So listen to our conversation and go check her out. Okay, here is me with Tom McCarthy. I am talking to Tom McCarthy. He's a writer, director, and actor. You have seen him or his work. There's no way to escape it. Um, he's in The Wire. He helped write Up. He directed Spotlight, got multiple Academy Awards for that. His most recent movie is called Stillwater. It stars Matt Damon, and you can see it in theaters, but only in theaters right now. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Good to be here, Peter. I just saw your movie in a screening room. I enjoyed it. I also enjoyed seeing a movie outside of my house. That was great. Um, and I would recommend it to anyone listening to this. But I want to hear how you would describe it and recommend it to someone who's coming in with with no knowledge about what this movie is. <laughs> my instinct would be not to describe it and just let mm-hmm. them go experience it. Because, I mean, quite frankly, that's my favorite way to see a movie. It's what I don't love necessarily about trailers and marketing materials. I think it sort of, uh, I don't know, hampers the ultimate experience. But in short, this story is about a roughneck uh, from Oklahoma. Uh, Roughnecks are oil rig workers. Uh, They are kind of an iconic fixture in the Oklahoma landscape. And uh, he travels abroad to visit his daughter, uh, his estranged daughter, I would say, uh, who's in prison for a uh, crime that she may or may not have committed. And uh, the movie goes in all kinds of directions from there. I like that you mentioned trailers because I, I did see the trailer before I went and saw your screening. And it kind of suggests that this is like a detective story or maybe a version of a Liam Neeson movie where the, the dad has to break the, the daughter out of jail and he's got a special set of skills. Yeah. And it's it's neither of those things. And I, I know who you are. So when it says this is a movie from Tom McCarthy, I, I got a sense that it wasn't going to be a Liam Neeson movie. But I'm wondering, do you get involved in, in the marketing and the trailering of, of this stuff? Or is this sort of out of your hands? Because I'm curious what you think of that. Uh, 
little bit of both. You know, I do get involved and we weigh in. And the studio, you know, this, we focused does a great job of putting movies in theaters and getting people to go to those theaters to see those movies. So, you know, they're the pros at that. I'm not a pro at distribution. Uh, you know, sometimes they tailor trailers to fit a particular audience or a particular need that they think an audience will or will sort of, you know, um, draw an audience into the theater. And so we're always just trying to find that balance. But you're mm-hmm. right. I think, you know, most people who know me and my movies um, we'll probably know it's a little bit more than what the trailer offers. You know, I think it's a constant conversation and I'll, keep in mind, there's like the original trailer and then there's a lot of materials that happen after that mm-hmm. and a lot written and talked about as we're doing now, which kind of help plate movies for people that, um, you know, aren't sure yet what it might be like. And, and I think reviews do that too, to some extent. This was supposed to be in theaters at one point last fall. And obviously those plans changed. Um, when you got a sense of what was going on last March 2020, were you thinking, oh, we could still get this in the theaters? And were you, were you hopeful that would happen? And then, then how did the decision to sort of hang on to it, not put it on via streaming or something else, um, and instead put it in theaters this year? How did that work? Uh, well, like most people, I had no idea what we were getting into. And little did I know we'd be talking about it today, two years later, and thinking, looking into the fall and wondering what the fall is going to look like. So... And that, I think, goes for everybody that works in just about every industry, not to mention the movie industry. So, I mean, what was clear was I had just shown the network, I mean, the studio, rather, the the picture, and they were really clear that they they felt it needed to be seen in theaters. It's just a more immersive experience. And it's a big movie with a lot of scope. A lot of it is shot in France. Um, and uh, they had an immediate reaction. And as a filmmaker, I was, of course, thrilled by this. I mean, I'd much prefer people see my films in a movie theater. There's just nothing better than that viewing experience. I don't care how great your setup is at home. Like if you if you literally have a, a, a home movie theater in your basement, and I mean a movie theater, okay, mm-hmm. maybe. Anything short of that, it's just a different experience. So you know, I preferred it and I agreed immediately. I was like, yeah, let's wait. Now, I don't know if any of us knew how long we were going to be waiting, but it all kind of worked out. You know, we took time away from the movie. We got back to work on it and, uh, you know, we just, re- you know, premiered it at Cannes, which we wouldn't have been able to in the last incarnation of its release. So, and I think that was actually a perfect spot to premiere Stillwater. Um, so it was all pretty exciting. It is the kind of movie that I like seeing in a movie theater because it really demands your focus. And no matter what, if you're seeing it at home, even if you've got that big giant screen, you're going to get up, you're going to check your phone. And I think most people think of movies in movie theaters today as giant explosion IP things, usually a comic book or maybe cars. And it seems like over the last year, all the studios that he- this this the movies that studios held on to that they didn't that they didn't sort of dump into streaming were those giant tentpole movies. And this is not a tentpole movie. This is a, a, a it's it's it got a big scope, but it's a small drama with Matt Damon and a couple other characters. Uh, so you didn't have to fight them to get this in the theaters. They they were up for no. It, it was literally their idea, and it is amazing when you watch a movie like this. Because you're right, there's there's real intimacy to this movie. It's a very emotional movie. It can be a very thrilling and suspenseful and even gripping and even, you know, movie. Um, so it's got all these different elements, but it's incredible when you watch it in a theater. And I've, I've seen it on a number of flat screens now because we had to do these mini screenings in our edit room when we were 
when we couldn't get into theaters to even screen it for audiences when we were testing it. So it's just a totally different experience. You just see more, you feel more, you understand more. And so in movies that do kind of traffic and in, in nuance also and in subtlety, uh, it's it's really exciting. You kind of just pick up more. And I think really where you feel it are in incredible performances, right? And Matt's performance, which everyone's now obviously talking about, but also all the other actors, the French actors, Kemi Cotton and Abigail Breslin. And, um, you know, it's just, it just has a very different feel. And I think it, it's more transportive in a way when you're seeing it on a, on a, on a full size screen. So is this a different movie than the one you had ready to go for November, 2020? Is it different in any meaningful way? Were you tinkering with it much? I would say it's a better movie. It's not dramatically different. You know, we were pretty close to locking when March, when the shutdown hit. And for us, it just meant, you know, look, as an editor, my longtime editor, Tom McArdle, and myself, whenever we get close to locking picture, we're always like, oh man, I wish we could, let's take two weeks. Let's take a week. And sometimes, you know, there's a cost involved in that. So the studio's like, uh, how about two days? Yeah. Uh, and then finish the movie, you know, but you're, you're doing that because you really want to get as much distance from it as you can. So that, you know, you can come to it with like, hopefully a, uh, really clear eyes and, and, and somewhat more objectively, where you can kind of do that final push, you know, that 10% to really like notch up the movie. In this case, we had two big breaks because we shut down for a while, came back to it, shut down again, came back to it just this past uh, March, I guess, right? The end of February, March, when my editor could got his vaccine and flew out, felt comfortable flying out to New York. And we knew then we were going to take it to Cannes. So we had to kind of bust it to get it done. But man, that separation from the movie was incredibly helpful in terms of the final, you know, 10 yards to the goal line, right? Where we just kept kind of, you know, we're able to, as you saw, it's a pretty complicated movie. It keeps a few storylines alive and at times even a few genres alive yep. within the same film, right? So, and that's very much by design and it's complicated. For me, it's without question my most complicated movie. So, you know, to have that separation and be like, oh, we don't need this. This is helpful. We can amplify this. Let's turn this. Let's lose this all together. And there were certain sequences which certainly benefited from the time away. No question. So obviously you're you're pulling stuff out. You're not adding in. You can't go back and film something and think, oh, uh, we're no, missing this. No, but keep in mind, like, you know, in the course of editing, like we had a lot of movie. Our first cut on this was pretty fat. And so you're always taking things like scenes off boards. And, you know, in this particular movie, I was working with two wonderful French writers, Thomas Bidigan and Noé Debray. And uh, they work a lot with this great French director, Jacques Odiard. And, you know, they have a system with Jacques where they call it, I think they call it a cahier bay which is like a notebook, the B notebook. And it's a bunch of scenes and ideas that don't quite fit in the movie, but they'd say, if we can get it, let's get it. And we shot a lot of that along the way. Um, and those, a lot of those moments work their way back into the movie uh, in montage sequences as kind of, you know, maybe transitional scenes and moments, time passage, all that stuff. So uh, a few of those, and there's a couple of shots in particular, which I, I, I really thought were out of the movie couple of moments that I thought this is out of the movie. And then in that last three weeks, it, we put it back in and I was thrilled. I was really excited about it. So I thought visually it just added punch. That's cool. You don't usually get an opportunity to sort of monkey with it that close to not to that degree, not when you're pretty locked, but you know, that's what I'm, that's what I was saying. You're always trying to step away so you can come back to it. And, yeah. um, we got lucky. So, uh, 
Even before this year of streaming that we had, this seems to me like the kind of movie that isn't supposed to get made anymore, that is supposed to be a streaming movie, that isn't a theatrical movie. This is a Netflix or Apple or Amazon. It's you're a known quantity and Matt's a, a movie star, but it's still not something that draws people to theaters normally. Um, was this ever considered to be a, a, you know, did you ever talk to the streaming platforms about any about this movie? No. Uh, participant was my first stop with the script. Mm -hmm. The first people we showed it to, David Lindy read it and said yes immediately, agreed to finance the movie. And then they have a relationship with Focus and same thing happened there. And I wanted it to be in theaters. I like I said, I, I still believe in that experience. So it's interesting, right? Because like the bigger explosions and things, you're like, well, let's see that on a big screen. Well, maybe, <laughs> but I've seen all that already. Yeah. And like, I, I, I'm someone who likes to go to the theater and see human dramas and see mysteries and suspense movies and thrillers because it's just so much more gripping. So, you know, I, I there might be some, I think, misguided conventional wisdom that, oh, you need to see the Marvel movies on the big screen. Well, sure, there's a lot of technical work done there. Um, but I still believe in the human movies too, the movies yeah. that have, uh, you know, lean more into character and, and story and arc in that way. So I don't know. I think that I, I hope we keep pushing on that wisdom or, or perceived wisdom because I think it can be slightly misguided that only the, the, the very expensive, you know, big movies belong in theaters. It's not the way it was for me growing up. And I'm thankful for that. You did do a streaming movie though recently. You did a, you did Timmy Failure, yeah. which was a, a hit in our household. Thank you, man. I love that movie. This is a kid series that's great, really smart, and uh, you did a great job. Yeah, it was a book, a wonderful series of books written by Stefan Pastis. And you know, I was going to make that for Disney, and that's right when Disney transitioned. And I remember I sat down with Sean Bailey, and they were like, "Hey, we're going to." start this Disney plus thing and all these movies that are 25 to 45 in that range, we're going to put right onto the, you know, the, the budget of that a, yeah, a budget, budget 25 budget to 40 million. Yeah. Yeah. Something like 20 to 40 million. That was their initial idea. Like all those uh -huh. family movies. And, uh, I was game. Look, I think streaming can be great. I don't have a problem with streaming. I think there's some terrific content on streaming, some terrific movies. I think there's a great opportunity for a lot of younger filmmakers or older filmmakers who haven't had their shot. Um, so I'm down with it. When I'm just talking viewing experience, I still think a theater. Like I, I remember we took Timmy to Sundance, and I think it was the first Timmy Disney movie to ever premiere at Sundance, mm -hmm. and that was pretty fun. And it, to see that with the Sundance crowd on a huge screen was awesome. It was so exciting. And we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Tom McCarthy after this word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And we're back. You talked about about sort of movies when you were, when you were starting out. What was your plan? Because you you you've done a bunch of different stuff: uh, acting, writing, directing. What was your plan coming up? Did you want to be an actor, a working actor, a working director, all of the above? Well, I mean, growing up, not even acting. I, I didn't come from any, any sort of artistic background, so um, none of that was my plan. I, I was a kid from Jersey who I went to Boston College as a uh, in the school of business, basically school of management. Uh, and then when I was there, things started to move a little bit on me. I was like, I'm not really into this whole <laughs> business thing. Uh, I I became a philosophy major. And then about my junior year, I just randomly tried out for this improvisational comedy group on campus called Every Mother's Nightmare. Um, it's turned out a lot of great you know, people. Emmy Poehler was an alum of that. Uh, she was a few years behind me. And, you know, that just opened my eyes to a whole new world of people and way of thinking. And maybe at that point, though, it still didn't seem like a career option. That said, those are the people I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota with that, um, you know, troupe. And um, we started writing and performing a lot. And then I started segueing into theater. And then I thought, oh, maybe I can do this. And I moved to Chicago and started doing plays. And then I went back to the Yale School of Drama. And it was about then I started seeing a path. It still seemed like a little bit make-believe. It was super exciting, but I just didn't have any precedent. What was the path that you saw? Was it, I'm going to be a writer? I'm going to be an actor? No, at that point, I was going to be an actor. I went from like, I'm going to do this sort of improv comedy because it was fun as hell, to doing some plays and thinking, wow, theater is really cool. I love the experience of being an actor in plays. Uh, I need to get some training. So that's why I went to Yale. And at that point, even being an actor seemed far off for me. It was like, wow, can I really do this? And um, that's where I started. I got out of Yale. And I started doing plays. And I started doing TV. I started doing movies. And it wasn't until like my mid-20s that I fell in love with cinema. Like I, I always appreciated movies like everybody in the world. But I didn't understand it deeply and I didn't have a love for cinema. And then I started – I was in New York in my mid-20s acting but had a lot of movie going time on my hands. And I just started sort of devouring movies, renting, going to film forum, going to Angelica, going to Lincoln center uh, and seeing everything that came out. And I think that's where I really sort of was turned on to the idea of um, ultimately writing and directing movies. I'm sure I had seen you prior to the wire, but that's certainly where I remember you. You're in, you're in season five. You play one of the more, more loathsome characters in the wire, which is saying yeah. something you're, you're the fabulous, yeah. the fabulous as in a uh, guy who makes stuff up, a journalist there. Yeah. Did you have a set? Well, it's season five of the wire. So obviously you knew what the wire was, but I think it was, that was a show that really didn't catch until it was almost over. Right. Yeah. Did you have a sense of what you were getting it, into? But I, I, I was like just getting into it when they called. And I auditioned for it initially. I think I auditioned for, who was the mayor? Carchetti? Was that mm-hmm. his name? Um, yeah. That eight, yeah. And I auditioned for that role. Didn't get it. And then like most actors were like, well, I'm not watching that show. They didn't hire me. And then I think I started to watch it anyway because I kept hearing great things about it. And then I was like, damn, the show's really good. I really wish I got hired on that. And then uh, I just finished shooting The Visitor, my second movie, and David Simon called and said, hey, I remember you and I got this other role. I think you'd be perfect for it. And 
Yeah, that was that. I jumped on it. Um, I do remember thinking, oh, I think I'm going to be perfect for it. I'm probably going to be a real badass. And then I turned out to be the biggest wanker in the, in the, whole, <laughs> in the whole world. I'm like, geez, Simon really saw something in me that he knew was just right for this role. So that's interesting. You, I didn't, I didn't quite figure out the chronology. So you're two movies in. You've made The Station Agent with Peter Dinklage, yeah. is great. The Visitor, which is great. And those are movies that, like, again, I'm not deeply into movies, but I'd certainly were on my radar. I knew about them. And you were yeah. able to toggle back and forth from directing and making your movies to being in a, and being in the wire. Yeah, that's what I, I remember because I was both editing and training down to Baltimore to do that. And it was a really exciting time, but it was a crazy time. And I remember thinking, okay, I got to be careful when I'm editing about doing much else. Some people are great at multitasking, but for me, editing takes a lot of focus. And uh, I learned that. But both jobs were so satisfying that, um, you know, creatively, it was terrific. I think I broke up with my girlfriend at that moment then because I just had no space <laughs> in my life. Yeah. Uh, I, lear I learned that lesson too, balance. Um, but uh, other than that, it was great. The um, journalists have very, very strong feelings about that season. I assume some of them have come to you. What's 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 your takeaway from your portrayal of uh, the the? Yeah. I keep wanting to say plagiarist, but fabulous. The, the guy who made stuff up, the Stephen Glass, Jason Blair character. Yeah, do they feel like guys. yeah, you you he, got um, him right, or or you didn't get it right? I mean, look, I think they think they got it right. I got it right because David Simon and his team got it right. Like David mm -hmm. understands journalism, as we know, and he wrote that character perfectly. The, you know, the the best thing about that show was as an actor, it was plug and play. Like the work was done. It was on the page. You showed up and I didn't even know where I was going from week to week. I didn't know how bad it was going to get or how bad I was going to get. Um, in fact, I would sometimes show up and go right to hair and makeup and they got next week's script and the people in the wardrobe or hair and makeup be like, Oh, you're bad. You're bad, man. <laughs> and I was like, am I, is it getting worse? They're like, Oh yeah, it's getting worse. That was like my first indication. I remember that bad things were coming for Scott Templeton. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, when I noticed it was when I started researching, really researching spotlight. I mean, I got a lot of flack on the streets of New York. Like literally, I remember one day being on a corner with my dog going to my office to work and a UPS truck pulled up and this guy just leans out. He's like, same thing. He's just like, you are bad, man. You are, you are <laughs> annoying. You are really annoying. And like everyone in the corner is like, why is he berating this dude? Like this guy was huge. And he just like, he did not like me. And, uh, and then he started laughing and waved and said, great job and rolled away. Yeah. And everyone was just like, what the hell just transpired? Does he hate that guy or love that guy? Um, but I, when I started researching Spotlight and spending time in newsrooms, specifically, as you know, the Boston Globe, if I walked through a newsroom back then, like every reporter was like, er, er, and then texting, you could, you know, sending messages down to the other reporters. And by the time I got where I was going, I was so made. Um, that was pretty funny. That was pretty obvious. And then every journalist in the world said, oh, you got us exactly right for Spotlight, right? We're all yeah. crusading, yeah. noble people that was who my are karmic, bearing witness. That was my karmic uh, contribution, I guess, to the world of journalism, uh, where they were quick to forgive and forget my wrongful ways. You seem like you are in very rarefied air right now. You get the ability to make movies. You've got a track record. You can put them into theaters. You're getting standing ovations at Cannes. Do you feel like this is the time that I've got this special project that I've always wanted to do and now is the time to do it? Or are you sort of working on more of a conveyor belt? Like, look, I've got these things lined up and this is the order I'm doing them in. <laughs> I wish I had the conveyor belt, man. You know, um, 
I will say Stillwater is that project, right? And that happened after the Oscar and I got to go do Timmy, which I really wanted to do. I directed a TV thing for 13 Reasons Why because my friend wrote it and I really liked that and I liked what the show was about. And, you know, for me, it's always been about curiosity, right? But Stillwater is the kind of movie, as you said at the top of this, you just don't get a chance to make much anymore. Like it's a a sort of a grand drama with a lot of different storylines happening and they're just movies I just love, you know? Um, and so uh, I kind of feel like I used whatever capital I have to make that movie. I'm, I'm glad so far it seems to be working out. We'll see in these crazy times how it does. But, um, you know, if Cannes any indication and in how it played for that audience, that was really exciting. You could just forget about the ovation. You could just feel how it was playing in the theater. Like, and, you know, I made this movie in France as American director. So I was very self-conscious about like, uh, did I get it right? Does it feel authentic? Does it mm-hmm. feel real? Will it feel real to French and European audiences? And and so that was really sort of throwing us into the fire on that one. But you could just feel it. You could feel them laughing and reacting and and um uh, and then you know just talking with people afterwards and press afterwards, specifically French press. You're like, okay, we checked that box. We got this right. Um, now we'll see if it does the same for American audiences. But um. You know, that that was just a thrilling moment in a career where you're like, okay, regardless of what happens, I'll always have tonight. Like tonight was just um was just special. I know it was special for Matt, it was special for the my co-writers, uh Toma Noe and and my entire filmmaking team. Well, good for you. Congratulations. Um not that I need to congratulate you because you're doing well no, without, no, my, without like, my pat you know, on the back. You know, it's all work, man. Like you said, do I feel like rarefied air? No, I feel like I got to keep working, you know, and um, and I, I this last year and a half has been anything but productive. I thought, oh, my God, shut down. I'm going to I'm going to come out of here with three movies. I realize my movies are deeply personal and I have to have a really specific point of view on what I'm doing. Like even with Stillwater, I started the script 10 years ago with another writer and I finished it and it was OK. It was a straight up thriller but I didn't have a point of view on it. I was like, I don't, it's not personal to me. So I put it down for seven years. So, you know, until I picked it back up again and picked up two new writers on it. So movies have to be, they gotta be something I'm feeling or is really top of mind on some level. And for me, at least personally, this last year, it's been really difficult to sort of, you know, work through all the static and confusion and pain and tragedy and uh, upheaval in our personal lives. Um, and, I, and I have been very fortunate. I've had nothing tragic specifically in my life, but not the easiest time to feel carefree and creative, at least for me. I, I am curious. I should have asked this up higher. Um, this movie does touch on, and it's, and it's an American in France, but it also touches on race and class. And I'm wondering, given events after George Floyd last year, whether you thought, oh, I wonder if I want to go back and tweak anything or underscore anything. Um, there's a direct reference to Trump at one point. Um, yeah. But uh, or do you think, oh, I wonder if this is the right time for this, or maybe it's, we're better waiting a year when it's not. It's not. It's not directly about race, but it certainly touches on it. Well, well, I think where it really touches on race is with class, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's as valid three years ago as it was last year, and like. You know, although I think George Floyd was certainly a wake up call to the world, some of us are really focused on those issues long before that, right? And, and specifically as writers thinking about those issues long before Floyd. And I, I, any project I go into where I'm dealing with class and race and other cultures, um, including France, <laughs> uh, I'm always, or, or Oklahoma, 
you know, writing about a roughneck from Oklahoma, like, yeah, I mean, Bill Baker's roughly my age and he's white, but we couldn't be much more different. And I want to get that right too. So, um, you know, uh, I think we take those things very seriously and, and keep in mind when I reapproached the script and started from scratch, I was working with two French writers and the way the French talk about and approach race and class and, and gender and everything else is very different than the way Americans do, right? Uh, for better or for worse, Americans are seeing all of these issues through one very specific and dynamic lens right now. Um, I think it's a time of great change, but it's also a time of like deep, deep, deep introspective focus. And sometimes that can become myopic in its own approach, right? And it's hard to zoom out and be like, okay, how else can we approach these issues? Like, what are we missing? Um, it's a huge country with a lot of opinions and a lot of social justice is coming about through sort of, uh, you know, almost instant social change, right? And I think that's really exciting, but it's a lot to digest. As you can feel, I feel like the country's trying to like, catch his breath and let the dust settle and be like, okay, where are we with everything right now? Um, it's a really, in some ways, it's a super exciting time. And in other ways, it's confusing. And I think as writers, you know, even trying to stay on top of it and be both responsible and aware um, is can be tricky. You know, um, I think for me, it's all about being as authentic as you can, as informed as you can, and not trying to answer questions, but really just trying to ask them, because I think uh, that's our job. Like, I'm not here to teach anybody. Uh, I'm here to kind of listen, learn, and reflect, uh, maybe is the better way of thinking about it. So I think that's what we did in terms of Stillwater. And no, there was nothing that I looked at after the pandemic, after Floyd, and thought, did we do we need to tweak this that felt uh, as deeply uh, thematic as that? You're pushing this one out in the world. Uh, you working on the next thing or are you going to give yourself a break? I am. I'm actually right now working on a TV project that came up uh, out of a out of a situation that I thought was kind of interesting. So that's where my focus has been right now. And I have a couple of movie ideas I'm swirling around with. So hopefully something will land. I feel like on some level I had to kind of birth Stillwater. Like I'm realizing like I needed to get it out there to get it off and and see where the world what the world is like right now. So hopefully when this is launched, um, I'll be able to kind of start focusing on that with a clear head or a somewhat clear head. All right. I will be watching whatever you put out. Tom McCarthy, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Great to chat. Thanks again to Tom McCarthy. Now we're going to hear from Kyla Scanlon. I'm here with Kyla Scanlon, uh, who this is going to sound familiar. She's 23. She's from Kentucky. She moved to LA. Now she's an influencer on TikTok. Some of this will sound familiar, but there's a twist. There's a couple different twists. Hi, Kyla. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. I want people to know who you are if they haven't seen you because you're doing something that is different and interesting and maybe I think sort of eye-opening. Describe what you do on TikTok and other uh, media. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, create videos around finance. Um, my main goal is financial education. So I do that through two different mediums. One is a daily market update that I'm taking a little bit of a break on right now. And the other is through skits. Uh, so trying to bring a little bit of humor to the financial space and tying 
like connecting the thread between a lot of different ideas that might seem confusing separately, but uh, together they're they're pretty powerful. So that's the main goal. I love what you do. Other people do as well. Well, how big is your audience right now? Do you think it's actually kind of small for TikTok? Like TikTok is only about sixty six k, and I've been there mm-hmm. for a bit. But on Twitter, it's growing pretty quickly, which has been cool. So I'm right around forty eight k on there, which is cool. Yeah. So this is a I'm gonna call you a micro celebrity, not not in a demeaning way, just to sort of by by TikTok and social media standards. Standards, you're sort of a niche thing, but you, you came out of nowhere. You've been doing this for just for less than a year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I started uh, making financial TikToks back in February when I was uh, no longer under compliance in my old role. So I really haven't been doing it that long, uh, but I've been creating content. What was your, what was your old role? I was in asset management at Capital. So yeah, you've been you've been in the markets. You you know your way around this stuff. You decided to get into it. And what is the long term plan? Or maybe there is no long term plan. It's just a thing you're doing. But you're doing it, I think, almost daily, right? So this is you're putting energy into it. Oh yeah, I mean, I make like two to three videos a day. Uh, how many make it like to TikTok is another question. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, the main goal for me is to, to like rethink how we think about financial education because it doesn't need to be as like uh, gatekept as it is right now. The institutions don't need to have as much power as they do. So how do you create more accessibility and transparency around the industry? And one way to do that is through videos that you know explain that. So the main goal is to develop some sort of financial education platform or some sort of tool where people can go and like learn about all these concepts in a way that is uh, approachable and not as like um, unapproachable is the way that we do it right now, which is hardly at all. So so I don't think it's a coincidence that you sort of started and this stuff took off around the same time as GameStop mm-hmm. and AMC and the meme stock uh, stuff in general. Do you think that's all sort of a permanent part of trading now? Or is this sort of a thing that maybe we move on from in a year or so when we're back at work and people are employed again and and they're not day trading? Yeah, that's a good question. That conversation is coming up more and more on Twitter, it seems. I mean, I think there's a weird sense of community behind like AMC specifically. And I think a lot of the memification has to do with people just wanting to understand what's going on. And because uh, there's so much gatekeeping per se, uh, you know, people memify this stuff so you can understand it. Like memes are short form narratives. And so I think that things are going to continue to be memed because people know that they can be. I don't think it's going to happen in the same way that it did back in January because that was, you know, a catalyst from a lot of different events. But I do think that we're probably going to see the continued um, trying to, you you know, wrap your head around the financial markets. You see it in crypto too, with some of these coins. Like I just think that's that's going to continue for sure, unless regulation steps up. Who is your audience? Is is your audience people who are trading and are looking for a tip, or are there people who are just killing time and want to be amused? Or do you think people are, are legitimately learning? stuff from, and, and, and I'm in the, I'm learning stuff from you. Uh, <laughs> you did a, you, you've done a great couple of explainers, uh, for me, but it also, it seems like a lot of this stuff you'd have to be sort of inside to even understand what you're talking about to begin with. Yeah. I mean, that's like the big line that I'm walking is like, okay, so you have to make content that's somewhat accessible, but you also have to make it fun for people who like are in the industry. Right. And so that's a really fine line that I still haven't figured it quite out. Um, I would hope that I think based on the comments on my actual TikToks, a lot of people are learning. Like the best comment I ever got was somebody being like, I used to not understand a word you say, but now I understand like 50%. And that's the main goal, right? Like there's sort of this osmosis through the TikToks. If you just watch them every day, you'll start to pick up on stuff and it'll make more sense every time. So that's the main goal is like, how do you get people, um, you know, wrapped around this, this idea of the markets? And that's 
but mostly through exposure. So if I'm at CNBC or Bloomberg or Morning Brew, or maybe I run a big trading platform, I'm thinking I want to employ Kyla because she understands how to speak to the young people. And that sounds like a good idea. Is your, are your inboxes flooded with, uh, with offers and, and, and propositions? Yeah, it's it's actually been kind of interesting because I'm I'm personally an introvert and uh, it, you know I never thought I'd be like making videos like this, especially like I think the one that was like the most startling uh, to my friends who know me well was like the Ghostbusters one. Like I've always been sort of like, like a jokester, but I've never been sort of out there and uh, putting myself out there like this. So yes, brands are. Um, you know, they're interested and they're like, do you want to be the director of marketing? And I'm like, I don't know how to market. Like I have no background in this stuff. Um, it's cool. Like I feel very honored that they would think of me, but it's, it's also like, I don't, I can't, I don't know what to tell you. I'd be so bad at that job for you. Yeah. Who is influencing what you make and how you make it? You've got a distinctive style. It seems to me to be a very TikTok-y style, but, mm-hmm. I, but I don't know what's, what are you, what are you, and TikTok is a very, and I mean this in the best possible way, monkey see, monkey do, right? You are, people yeah. are, are, are deliberately ripping off each other's memes and copying them. What's, where does your style come from? Yeah. I mean, the algorithm sort of forces you to, you know, follow the trend. I, I would say like, I get a lot of inspiration from stand-up comedians. I really like, um, like that sort of the, the sets. Um, and then also I watch a lot of commentary YouTube, like Cody Ko, uh, um, like Curtis Connors, Drew Gooden, et cetera. So I think I get some of the humor from them. I would say I get a lot of it from them actually. Uh, and then I also, you know, I do watch a lot of TikTokers and I'll be like, oh man, the way that they did that was so cool. Like, let me try it implement it, but more in a financial style. I've seen you talk about sort of, uh, is it DAOs or DAOs? Yeah, uh, DAOs. And, and pretty obscure finance stuff, um, stuff that I'm <laughs> glancing and familiar with. It, what's the, at what point do you go, this is too complex and nerdy for me to try to do in a one minute TikTok? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I've tried to, you know, at least write a script for most ideas that I have. Uh, I don't, I haven't approached like a deep, deep crypto just because that's, I don't even understand that stuff, uh, <laughs> which isn't saying that much, but yeah, deep crypto is super complex. I tried to do a video about the capital asset pricing model and it just gets a little bit sticky because like, you know, if you're, if you're drawing examples on things or you're trying to do analogies and the core concept isn't familiar to people, it's tough to do that because you have to like introduce the concept and then you have to draw an analogy around it. And so it just takes a little bit of time and the viewer's attention is so fleeting, right? And so you have to really capture them in that first like 10 or 15 seconds. And you can't do that through, you know, just explaining something. So I would say I, I've shifted towards more, more basic concepts right now. Where do you think you are in a year? Are you running your own business? Are you <laughs> running your own education platform? Or are you, are you a full-time CNBC contributor? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I've learned about myself over the past couple months and sort of just, you know, trying out content and getting that instant feedback loop from it is I really enjoy like making content and I really like explaining things and the, you know, the best feeling in the world is when somebody's like, oh, I learned something. So I think hopefully it'll be more in, in, on my own platform side uh, and, you know, building out my own distribution and helping other people do the same. Uh, I'm really passionate about like the creator economy and creator wellness. I think that's something that we don't, you know, talk about a lot is sort of the mental toll that some of this can take, especially like being so online. So yeah, it, hopefully something combining both of those. Okay. I'm going to keep watching. So what, what, where would you prefer if I, if I was going to uh, allocate my media time? Do you want me to watch you on TikTok? Do you want me to show you on Twitter? Is there a new platform that I should be paying attention to? Yeah, I have a YouTube uh, if you like longer okay. stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but I would say TikTok is probably the 
place where I post all of my videos. Twitter only seems some of my videos. I post memes on Twitter if you like memes. And I post threads also. Uh, so I do a re one research paper a week. So if you like research, uh, I have a Substack and I turn that into YouTube as well. So basically I'm just super everywhere. <laughs> Can't avoid me. <laughs> so. I'm getting your Substack. I'm seeing it on TikTok. Now you're increasingly seeing it on Twitter. You're, you're going awesome. places. Thanks for making okay. some time. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Kyla. Thanks again to Tom McCarthy. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing the show. As always, thanks to our sponsors and thanks to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.